You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. All right. Hello. It is 4 and we are new at the Creative Network Characters panel. My name is Matthew McKinney, and I am the host of Rest Negotiations Star Wars Podcast. Well, welcome to the Star Wars Podcast. And I'm really excited to be here. Um, this might be the most nervous I'll be all weekend because this is an amazing lineup. And um, you're going to be talking about creating iconic characters. And so, first, I wanted to have the panel please introduce yourself and allow them to know some of the iconic franchises and or characters that you have gotten to work on so they have an idea of um, what you've gotten to do. You start with me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, my name is Henry Gilroy. I write a lot of animation. Um, I've worked, um, gosh, from everywhere from uh, Warner Brothers on Batman the Animated Series all the way up through Justice League and Timon and Pumbaa for Disney and Lilo and Stitch and Kim Possible as well as uh, the animated Clone Wars series, the CG series. I co-created Ahsoka Tano and Captain Rex. Um, I was there for a few years. I also worked on uh, G.I. Joe Renegades, uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, uh, Hulk and Ages of Smash, Avengers, um, and most recently, Star Wars Rebels. For, for, which he, for which he and Rebels Season 4 are up for an Emmy, by the way. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Timothy's on. I just write books. Uh, <laughs> Uh, created a couple of characters uh, back in the 90s, added a few more uh, nowadays. Uh, <laughs> I, I think lovingly borrowed, uh, yes, uh, I'm very pleased with how Rebels dealt with Grand Admiral Thrawn and uh, such. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, uh, Rob Olsoff. Um I kind of glue things together usually. Um, I've worked on various films making costumes of lead characters like Dread. Um, I, I'm a sort of specialist costumer, so I'll get asked to do a particular character for a film, maybe for, like we did one before, two that was the armoured guy. Um, anything a bit kind of more like a prop than a, than a costume is my kind of thing. So like spacesuits for the Martian or um, bits of Gladiator. Quite a lot of Ridley Scott films is what I've been mostly doing in the last kind of 30 years, really. Uh, my name is Fawn Davis. I've been uh, working in motion pictures and television on the special effects side mostly. Um, uh, for 30 years this year. Um, and I've worked on over 30 feature films uh, like the Star Wars series, Matrix series, Jurassic Park series, Terminator series, little indie things, you know. Um, <laughs> and uh, now I run a production studio in Los Angeles and we do everything from design, um, you know, sets, characters, environments, uh, and robots, a lot of robots, um, through uh, fabricating them and then doing photography. Um, my name is E.K. Johnston, and I am a writer. I wrote Star Wars Ahsoka and the forthcoming Star Wars Queen's Shadow, which is about Padme Amidala and her handmaidens. So I wanted to ask you guys, when you were first hired to work on one of these franchises, uh, and, and what is the first step in creating these characters from your specific arena? Um, from from writing uh, the, well, like the Star Wars uh, or even any of the superhero stuff, you, you're, you're drawing on a lot of um, uh, prehistory 
So everybody has expectations for what Spider-Man should look like, or Batman, or even you know an armored character, um, and a pre-established, um, as well as like the effects or robots. Um, but uh, uh, for me, uh, something special about Star Wars specifically was it was kind of like the first mythology that was sort of defined in film. It came from cinema. And I think when you look at what inspired it, it was a lot of movies that were samurai films combined with the Western and uh, the old 30s science fiction story. So uh, when I go back, I really kind of think about, um, gosh, what's sort of a pulpy style character that kind of draws from cinema that I can come by and, um, and then, you know, I leave it up to our costumer you know, and our uh, effects guy to actually figure out how to make it. <laughs> so when I write the phrase like, you know, the gladiator shows up in bitch in armor, um, <laughs> it takes me one second to type that in that six months of his life. <laughs> so thank you, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I think the key is, as Henry says, you've got to have something that fits into the atmosphere, the feel of what you're doing. So, uh, you, you want it to feel like this person could be just off camera in, in a Star Wars movie, would walk past and not be a glaring distraction to people. So that's you start by understanding the feel of how this this thing works, whether it's you know, Star Wars Terminator or something else, and then uh, construct your characters that way. Uh, from my point of view, usually there's a drawing of, or a design of some sort that I'm working to for a costume. It, it could be, if it's on a big like Marvel film or something like that, it could be something that's virtually photorealistic that they expect to be reproduced in every detail, or on a more, but much more low-budget film like, like Dread, it could be just a rough pencil sketch that I'd be elaborating on and collaborating with the designer to kind of refine the look. Um, or even sometimes on some of the Doctor Who's I've worked on, I've been given pretty much free reign to do sketches myself and then get those approved by the costume designer. So it can be anything from a rough pencil sketch as a starting point to a photorealistic um, piece of artwork. But even on, on I think, one film, uh, I think it was 47 Ronin, there was a, a character I was given all these kind of CG renderings of that I was looking at thinking... So has someone actually built this already? Because these look so realistic. Um, so it can vary hugely. That's funny. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's anything from a napkin to a 3D computer model. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, the same thing. I mean, we do a lot of, um, when we do our character work, uh, we do a lot of immersion. So if it's a subject matter like Star Wars, we'll dig into a lot of Star Wars books. And, and luckily I'm very familiar with that growing up a fan of the series myself. Uh, but in other series, yeah, you dig into whatever the mythology has already been uh, created as well as what that mythology has been inspired from. You know, so we have a full library at our studio of reference books. Uh, maybe, the, you know, these things are inspired by insects or mammals or, you know, robots or whatever. Uh, and, and robots from genre to genre are very, very different. Um, but most of all, the one thing that we always, always focus on is storytelling. So even if you're just doing something as simple as a robot... Um, you try to tell a story about the robot with the paint job. You know, like in the world of Star Wars, everything is very, very dirty and used because it's a very uh, practical universe, you know. Uh, if we're working on a Star Trek movie, everything would be very clean because, uh, you know, the Federation has standards. <laughs> <laughs> they got money. You know, so it's, it's, it's exactly that. It's just, you know, it's always, always goes back to the storytelling. Um, what I've done so far is primarily character expansion over character creation. I've, I've created the side characters, which I hope become iconic, iconic eventually. Um, but with Ahsoka and with Padme and the Handmaidens, I've kind of got to go back into a character that I know a little bit about or that we know five seasons worth in Ahsoka's case and um, sort of flush out what goes off, what goes on off screen, which was also very fun. That's something that brings to mind this idea what inspires you then when you're either creating a new character or you are working on something that already is iconic and you're adding to that where does that inspiration then come from um yeah if it's, if it's already been um created it's i think faithful representation um so that there is something that goes wow that's kind of if it came from a book that's exactly what i 
expect Kron to look like or have him to behave. And um, when it's already um, appeared in like a different media, like let's say film, and it's coming to animation, I think is 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 bringing it to the new medium. And out of books is the same thing, bringing it to a new medium, but um, still giving it all of the characteristics that makes it what it is. Yeah, basically that uh, working with Padme and uh, Thrawn alliances. I thought the character was kind of wasted in the prequels, but they flush out really wonderfully in the Clone Wars. So with Padme, she's got she she can you know shoot, she can fight, but she can also be a diplomat. So she when I put her in a particular situation, it was a question of okay, this is Padme. Which tool will she pull from her toolbox to deal with this problem? And I think that helps make the character okay. Yeah, that's exactly what Padme would do in this situation. Um, before answering the question, it just occurs to me, I worked with Padme as well, because I was doing the uh, wire frames to do her big hairstyles in fact. <laughs> <laughs> so three of us on the panel worked on the same character. Priya's going to have some follow-up questions in a second. Brace yourself. <laughs> um, but to answer the question, the inspiration usually will come from the costume designer and their either their drawing or, or their enthusiasm and, and vision of what the character is going to be, um, or sometimes if it's a character with a history that goes back over uh, many years, like something that's a recurring character from a series, it can come from um, the history of those of that character, and it could be that I'm in a situation, as has happened on Doctor Who, that I'm more familiar with the past history of a, of a character or a group of characters than the person actually designing them. So that can be quite helpful to have a bit of input as well and try and respect what's been done previously and update that and, and adapt it to uh, work better with a modern audience. Yeah, for us, if we're dealing with uh, an established character, of course, it always starts with research. Like I was saying before, immersion. Um, you know, luckily for us, uh, a lot of the companies that we work for um, have pretty good archives of photographs and things like that, so we'll dig into all the photographs, try to get as many measurements. Sometimes we get a hold of the original molds or even some of the original proper costume pieces uh, for characters. Um, sometimes it is something as simple as restoring. When we did the uh, Star Wars Special Editions, uh, that was the easiest costuming we'd ever done because it was all already done. We just had to fix it. But they were done in like the 70s and 80s, so they were falling apart. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's... that's for me, I usually, I used to think it was really because people would be like, what's your inspiration for writing Star Wars? I'd be like, Star Wars? <laughs> um, but so much of the Star Wars inspiration is cyclical. Like it comes from that tradition of Westerns and the tradition of samurai movies and all the like, um, if you follow um, Brian Young on Twitter, he knows way more about it than I do. But um, the idea of sort of keeping the, the story going, I think is kind of one of my favorite parts of it. And um Working alongside Ashley Eckstein, obviously, was fantastic. And she was tremendous in terms of um, helping me put things together. She's pretty She's so great. <laughs> I try not to be like, she's the best person ever, but she really kind she of is. is. She really is. <laughs> what is, so when you guys are specifically creating something new in one of these franchises, what questions do you have to ask yourself in your respected areas to, to make that come about? And then fit within whatever it is you're working with if it's pre-existing or maybe it's just something that's a brand new movie and you're you're bringing it to life for the first time what are those questions you have to ask um working on clone wars it was it was kind of not easy but i think the idea is that you know the film genres that your boss george lucas loves so if you create a bounty hunter and you you know and you know pattern him after somebody from like a classic western like lee van cleef from you know the, the fistful of dollars movies then you realize like oh okay you know that's probably going to be approved so um, <laughs> and, but that's also a character that feels right in the star wars universe so we've heard of bounty hunters existing in that universe so it's kind of like tim was saying uh, before about like uh, you know does this character belong in here are they just off screen I just wanted to add something, by the way. I did. I worked on Padme too, <laughs> and, and, he was, yeah, and, yeah. and Tim had said, "Like, oh yeah, which which tool is she using? You know, diplomat or action?" Just so you know, our very first meeting with George Lucas on Clone Wars, he's like, "I want Padme to be like a diplomatic action heroine in the series." <laughs> so you're yeah. like dead on. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, that that is the tools that she was set up with and that you, you want to take whatever you were given, as you, you guys have all said, and, and use that. One of the other considerations, along with does this character fit into, say, Star Wars, is to spend some time thinking, okay, how are all the other characters, the established characters, going to see them, to react to them, etc.? One of the, the plot threads I was kind of hoping for at uh, season four of Rebels, but I knew you didn't have time for it with everything else you had to wrap up, was uh, Callus. And how the fact that some people in the rebellion would never, ever trust him. Uh, you just didn't, if you had a five or a fifth or a fifth, sixth season, you might have brought that, that in. That, there, we wrote some of that stuff. It's on the, you know, on the cut and paste. Yeah. You know, I never got it. Never got it. Because you just didn't have enough room for it. But how are people going to react to this character is one of the keys that helps define who the character is then. Um, the question, this isn't any an exact answer to that question, but the way it was phrased reminded me of something that happened to me a while ago um, working on Doctor Who. There was a design, a new design came in, new new character. Uh, there was a drawing, looked kind of familiar, um, a guy with, with a winged helmet. I thought, I've seen that before. That's, that's the helmet of invisibility from Clash of the Titans that was the inspiration for that drawing. Now, I know that that helmet was made by one of the first guys in the UK to use fiberglass uh, for, for, for props. He, he did like the very early Cybermen of Doctor Who. And I know that when he retired, I bought a load of molds from him. And I had the mold for the exact <laughs> oh, that nice. the designer had chosen as inspiration for the new <laughs> design. So I could just fiberglass one out of the new mold. <laughs> There we go. Job done. <laughs> uh, for us, we're doing a new design. Um, we, we have an art department, plus we have our fabrication shops, and I've always bounced between those two departments at most companies. Um, is uh, We'll start with thumbnail sketches. We'll usually talk to the director or whoever's handling characters for the show, and then we'll start with thumbnail sketches. We'll have the director pick their favorite features from the thumbnail sketches, and then we'll do more refined drawings, and then maybe two more rounds of their fine drawings, and then we'll actually get into either making maquettes or actually fabricating uh, for the, the character. Um, but yeah, and then from, yeah, and sometimes it'll go straight into the computer to create the character, and sometimes we'll design it for um, physical space where we all live. <laughs> we do. Um, I, uh, this is the first um, stuff I've ever worked on where I got to create non-human characters. Um, which was exciting. And for specifically the Inquisitor from the Ahsoka book, um, when I was describing him, I was really describing him as like not the ones we've seen in Rebels. So as, every time I was come, trying to come up with like ways to describe what he looked like, I was like looking at the ones from Rebels and being like, okay, not that. Um, and then he shows up in the Darth Vader comic and someone messaged me on Twitter and they were like, look, it's your Inquisitor. And he was perfect. And um, that was kind of like, for me, it was a huge moment because it was the first time I'd ever seen one of my characters characters um imagined in like a, a different medium from the one that i'd written which was cool is there anything working in star wars all of you have gotten a chance to do that so is there anything special that you guys have to think about when working in that universe are there any you know rules where you're like this you know, you, we can't go that far that breaks it what is there anything that um you have to have in your mind when you're creating a star wars character is it pretty much anything goes uh, most of the time, we tried to stay away. Just kind of a general rule was not to make the characters like superheroes. So someone couldn't fly unless they had wings, and it made sense for them to have wings. So you don't get a lot of um, superhero-y kind of things going on. You know, I, it really comes down to kind of like Paul was saying about purpose. What's the purpose of the character in the story? Especially if it's an ancillary character or a secondary character. And then wherever you can, as you were saying, try to actually create some visual that represents or symbolizes who they are as a character. Um, and then you know, obviously a lot can be done with sound, the way their voices or the noises they make. So um, with Star Wars, it, 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 George gave us the freedom of anything goes. You know, he'd take, you know, a monster design and turn its head upside down and go, oh yeah, do that instead. Yeah, I, I think it's a lot of internal consistency, just I mean, there are any number of things you could do that would 
not be Star Wars. I think at, at some point you've just got a sense of what it is and you know, okay, that won't work. Uh, what you were saying is good. You want to kind of limit your Jedi as much as possible. You want to limit the power of any given side. I, I think uh, they call it game balance in the gaming industry. So no side can overwhelm the other too easily. But it's just a sense of when I'm writing out a, a, a outline or something or a book, that's not Star Wars. This is Star Wars and just going with that. So that's a great question. How do you figure that out? Because there is, is it just this innate sense of like, okay, that's not Star Wars and that this is? Because it almost yeah. seems like that's ineffable, but we all know what that is. You have to search your feelings. <laughs> I... For me, it was 19 times watching the original movie and however many times later on the other movies and such. Uh, just, yeah, it's kind of a feel. Um, you know, I, I don't know what about art, but I know what I like type of thing. And for me, it's just a sense of what I think Star Wars should be and what it is. And it's not the same as other people's view necessarily. I think from the costume side of things, it was just trying to make sure that everything looked like it came from a used universe, so it all had a past history. Um, I guess Amidala was a bit of an exception to that rule because of her status, but mostly it was just um, making sure it lived in a, a, a used universe. Yeah, actually in the prequels, uh, the reason things were cleaner in the prequels, George had described it as um, the universe was a much nicer place before the Empire took over. <laughs> So things were cleaner in the prequels than they were, and they got dirtier kind of as, as we got closer to New Hope. Um, but yeah, that was, that was very much part of the aesthetic for Star Wars, but also um, it, it, everything in Star Wars was, they had to fit into the con confines of um, being inspired by something in our world. George always wanted to have something familiar about the character or something familiar about the guns and the, you know, so you, you could see uh, inspiration drawn from all different cultures around the world, different points in history. Um, and there were some rules that he would later decide to break. Like there were no wheels in Star Wars. That was a thing. <laughs> and then we saw wheels in, in uh, Revenge of the Sith. Finally. Um, but anyway, so, so uh, there were definitely rules having to do with um, just drawing from reality. Like with the creatures, they all they were all inspired by some actual creature, like the anatomy, the musculature, and all that kind of stuff. And the same went for characters, environments, and all of that. And I just wanted to add, I, I, I also worked with Padme, but not, <laughs> not the character. I was the supervisor for her apartment in miniature. So this should be my I have some follow-up questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess everyone pretty much said it perfectly and for, for me it is legit like search your feelings and that's how you know if it's Star Wars um, and sometimes I find I'll read something and be like huh I never would have thought of that and then I'll talk about it with another fan or someone else and it will be totally Star Wars for them and as they explain it to me with like animated hand gestures and like all that kind of stuff I'm like oh, okay yeah I get it now um, and I really like that kind of community based as um, sort of analysis as well. I have to throw in just a comment. You were talking about Amidala's outfits. In uh, Alliances, I've got a scene where Padme is changing outfits to head off and do something. I got a note back. I think it was Jennifer Heddle said, this is Padme. Can we get some description? <laughs> <laughs> That's really important. Yeah. yeah. got to get the outfit just right. Um, what does it... Icon is a tough thing, and all of you have worked on icons. So what do you think it takes to create an icon in these different franchises? I mean, from Doctor Who, where you have over 50 years of history. Uh, Star Wars is now 40, you know. Um, and then, you know, Henry, working on every single franchise under the yes. sun in animation. I mean, yeah. what does it take then to create an icon in one of these franchises and have it stand next to, I mean... Standing next. What what is that? How, how do you do that? I, I think I approach a lot of my storytelling um, from the kind of the Joseph Campbell myth, mythic. So I really kind of try to hone in on an, on an archetype. Um, obviously, Luke's you know the, the the coming of age story, and we obviously get that with Anakin too. But you can see that in Peter Parker too. And um, you know when you talk about stories, um, 
you know, Vader's story about someone who's tempted to go down the dark side, didn't mean to, but turn to the dark side. I think everybody has struggled with that. So iconic, I think, always is, in my mind, something into the character that we actually relate to on a deep primal level. And then how it's represented visually, um, I think, is the, the psychology of it, you could say. So for me, it's it's how does this character relate to not just me, the person writing it, but to everybody out there who's going to read the story or see the story visually. Um, but uh, yeah, I defer to at least at least for the visual medium. That's the way I go about trying to create a character or actually dealing with the character who, who is iconic. And I think it's funny you say iconic because I think. That actually has been a really hot point just recently with a lot of people, how they feel about Luke Skywalker and who he is and then who he was treated, how he was, you know, treated in the latest movie was a lot of people went, wait a minute, that's not the iconic character I know. So that's kind of a great question. Yeah, I agree with what Henry said, but I would also say that we create characters we hope will resonate, whether they become icons is up to you guys. We don't set out, okay, I'm going to make a character that's going to last in the public awareness for 40 years. We, we have no idea. We're just doing the best characters we can, the ones that, re- that, that resonate with us and hope will resonate with you guys. You get to choose who gets icon status and who doesn't. Yeah, I think a huge amount of it comes from the writing to start with. If, if, if you haven't got that, then you haven't got the character. And also you've got to factor in the performance of the actor as well and, and and hopefully having some kind of visual that backs both of those things up in a original way really yeah for on the design side um you know we do actually think about uh icons but probably in a much different way than in, in writing of course uh because we're not describing the character um through story we're describing it visually so of course we we always think about what what can we do to forward the story that's being told by the writer as a director um, but also when we, when we're in that thumbnail stage that I was talking about earlier, we do look for, that's one of the things you look at when you're doing thumbnails is what are those iconic shapes, yeah, yeah. you know, and you try to look at that shape and go, is that, is that iconic or is it just kind of a squiggle? You know, you, you do look for shapes that define, uh, the character, you know, so there's a lot of that. Yeah. And George always saying, you know, he wanted you to see in silhouette, you knew what shape that was, you knew what part of the, that was a good side shift was a bad side shift you knew form the shape that you had so um i think for me it's basically what tim said that moment of connection with the audience and there has been quite a bit of that in star wars but i think the one that i saw and i was like oh my god i want to do that someday um was the moment in solo when enfys nest took her helmet off yeah and it was like, because it was just so unexpected and so wonderful. And um, there's one wandering around. She's absolutely gorgeous if you find her. She's so good. Um, and just that moment where I was like, well done, everyone who was part of this. Because um, it was a secret and it was wonderful. And like, it will be seared into my heart forever. And even if she's just iconic to me, like, that's the other thing, too. Like, there's a lot of characters who are going to be iconic to really specific people. And that's... Um, something that I think we can sort of expand going forward. I think then the main answer for you guys is that you you have to create a story first that matters, that people are going to resonate with. That's the most important part. You know, if it's, there's no story there, nobody's going to care what the design of something was in the end, you know, and and what creates an icon is, is something that touches the soul of human being. And that comes from something like, the hero's journey, you know, because it's it's ingrained in all of us from you know eons of history now. So, um, from I would love to hear from the different perspectives uh, as you are in your specific areas working on these icons. What are the different things that you get to then add to the icon? From you know whether it's visual effects, whether it's creating a costume. How um, is your part of the process? Uh, how does that add to? what we see, you know, on screen? Um, uh, gosh, I, I could use Ahsoka as an example. We were creating... I mean, <laughs> um, we created Ahsoka from kind of the very initial point of view was to actually make the series about her and and her journey through the Clone Wars because we know what happens to Mace and we know what happens to Anakin and Obi-Wan. So but what we don't know is her journey and, and, and how she grows up during this time of war. And I think that's just 
having a young person grow up in a time of war and having all these experiences away from the temple, um, I think was a really interesting um, exploration for me as a person going like, gosh, how would I feel if I had to grow up during a time of war? Um, so that I think was a, 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 a really powerful um, um, reason to investigate and do research about what happens when people you know, grow up in a time of hardship like that. So that's something I felt that I, it kind of helped me grow as a person. The other nice thing about adding in a character like Ahsoka is you don't know if she will survive. That adds a little tension to it. You know Anakin gets through this okay in Padme, but you don't know about Ahsoka. Uh, so adding the new characters that you don't know their end point adds to the tension and the interest and such. Uh, I will just mention one little thing I got to do in Alliances. Uh, I was told that Vader kind of pushes the Anakin past away from him. He does not really acknowledge it. So one of the things we came up with was when Vader's remembering something that happened to Anakin, it, it's not, I remember this, it's the Jedi did that distancing himself, which I thought makes a nice, also nice uh, little extra addition to the title Return of the Jedi. So little things like that. And I get, of course, get the advantage and the comic books get the advantage. We can get inside the character's mind where you don't really get to do that in a visual medium. Um, with my side of things, it's not quite as open to creative interpretation. Usually I've got quite strict guidelines to follow, but it's just trying to make something as believable as possible and give it a history, put little details on. Um, for example, I did some, some helmets for the Doctor Who 50th anniversary show for, for soldiers, and it was just little things like making them look like there were clips that you could attach a gas mask to or, or you could put a little helmet, a helmet mounted camera on. You don't ever see that. We didn't build a gas mask or, or a camera, but it's just trying to put on little details that add to the overall believability, really. Pockets. Star Trek has forgotten about pockets. <laughs> In bathrooms. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, for, for us, I mean, because we do have an art department, we get to design stuff. Um, if we're on one of the bigger movies, they have uh, much bigger art departments, and a lot of times we just kind of add to the designs that have already been created um, by very talented people like Doug Chang. Um, and, and one of my favorite things when we were working at ILM was to get a drawing, uh, for one of the Star Wars characters or, or environments or whatever. And, um, it's just one piece of artwork that just shows one view and they go, and you can just make up the rest. <laughs> so it's just great because we're building a model or, or a costume or a character, uh, in 360 degrees and we have an artwork that just shows one side. So we get to take that and use that for inspiration to create the whole rest of the, um, uh, Art, so it's, it's a lot of fun that way. Um, so in 1999, I went to see a movie, and it was called The Phantom Menace, and there was this awesome girl gang in it, um, and they kind of didn't show up again with a lot of lines in the future, although they do uh, different versions of The Handmaidens come back. And so um, when the opportunity came up to sort of go into them a little bit more, I was like, yes, thank you. I will take all of them, put them in my book. I am not a huge fan of group scenes because like mass conversations are deeply terrifying to me. Um, cause when you're reading them, they're difficult to like, make sure you know where everybody in the room is, even if they're not talking. And in this book, I was like, I'm just going to do it <laughs> because I was so excited to sort of expand, um, on this like fantastic group of girls that we don't know that much about yet. Can I ask one, I was just going to ask you, um, you said, uh, you like built a model for Padme's apartment. Did you do the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> There is no bathroom in this So it's just like Star Trek. That's they, have to, yeah. they have to go downstairs. I can't Shall imagine going to the bathroom in those dresses, too. It's, it's new space food. They don't. They don't have <laughs> Nobody produces space. She's a queen. She does not use it. <laughs> uh, it really isn't that new panel. Which kind of brings me to this question. For all the iconic characters that you have gotten to work on, what are, what is your favorite? And what was the thing that you got to add to them that just, you know, I mean, 
like you came, just paying bill. You just were so excited that you got to, to be a part of that. Somebody else want to start? Oh, I have to think. Um, I really enjoy uh, enjoyed writing Bail Organa. Um, he was fantastic. And there was a scene um, in the Ahsoka book that I tried not to be, like, indulgent and put in things that, like, fan me would want to see. I tried to, like, keep it a little bit professional. Um, but there's the fish tank scene in Ahsoka, which was entirely for myself. And when I got to keep it, I was like, yeah. Um, because that's the scene with Leia. So it was um, it was really fun to sort of get to write that tiny, tiny snippet and then keep it. Um, I think probably reimagining what Judge Dredd looked like yeah. for the movie and the real thrill after that is seeing that look go back into the comics and um, see how that what we did in the movie has reinformed the way some of the comic books are illustrated and um, being able to have a bit of input in moving away from the very kind of high gloss polished gold look of the um, Stallone movie that had gone before and, and just take it all in, in, into a much more kind of believable hopefully more kind of gritty direction. For, for me it was really interesting because when I, I grew up on Star Wars I was a huge fan of Star Wars and then when I finally got to work on it um, it was it was more exciting to work on the characters that were established when I was a child than newer characters, uh, just because there was that nostalgia involved, you know. Um, but the, the funnest thing about creating new things is uh, they made toys of everything. So you might grab a little detaily bit off the table and glue it onto a robot, and then that you'll see that same thing miniaturized on the table. <laughs> like that's that thing I found on the table. <laughs> I would tell everyone forever. <laughs> Um, I, mean, sorry, I was just going to say that, that's a really good point. Seeing the toy come out of something that you've worked on is always really exciting. Uh, Thrawn, everything. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, probably the biggest challenge, I talked earlier about how people react. The biggest challenge in alliances is having Vader and Anakin and Padme and Thrawn and seeing how they will react, all of them, to this character. Because it, they're different points of view, different uh, goals, different motivations, different constraints. How are they going to deal with him? And that's that's a lot of fun to be able to ex expand those characters a little bit. I, I definitely can see that for Tim Zahn, Thrawn, Tim Zahn. <laughs> no relation. <laughs> um, actually, do, do you want to know where Thrawn comes from? You know where Thrawn comes from, right? No, I don't think you've ever told me. Um, when I was first creating the character, I thought since he's the only alien in the higher echelons, he might have developed a certain amount of neuroses and such. Uh, that I lost, I gave away that idea very quickly and put all that crazy stuff on uh, the, the clone Sabioth instead. But I had, by that time, I had chosen the name for the character, which is the Scottish word for twisted. So Thrawn is twisted, is not, does not rhyme with my name, and is not at all related to it. <laughs> um, probably, the, for me, uh, the iconic characters were really being able to develop um, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker in the Clone Wars. And I think to really show, here's how these characters, the last time you see them in um, Attack of the Clones, how they became who they are in Revenge of the Sith. So that was a really... Um, great exploration to say, hey, here's here's what happens when you have these two noble characters who go to war. One of them really does, um, uh, is affected more than the other and how they would react differently. So that was something in my mind was, was something that we wanted to really build into the series to show the, the evolution of these characters. Maybe these immediately survive, but we don't know how they got from point A to point B. And that was very effective and very much appreciated because it would seem such a jolt in the movies, but you got to fill in all of that and make it feel much more reasonable. Yeah, I mean, you get to the end, you know, in Revenge of the Sith now, and the hero completely turns into the villain, and you're like, what? But you had like seven seasons of being amazing, and now you're this, why? You know, and it, it really does, it changes that, and I think that's something that's so... Interesting. And so it brings me a question for you guys. And then after this question, um, if you guys want to ask questions, um, just come over here and I'll give you the mic. Um, but 
do you prefer to work on legacy characters, um, or do you prefer to create your own, and why? I, I get paid nothing to ask these hard questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, they're both fun to work with. I like being able to develop uh, added things to the characters or just expand on what's already been shown in the movies or the TV shows. But it's fun to bring your own characters in to play in George's sandbox and such as well. So I, I would say the answer is yes for both of those. I like um, expanding on characters that we already know. So if they're sort of like a minor character or someone from the background who doesn't have quite as much of a backstory as, as Anakin or Obi-Wan um, and to sort of dig into them a little bit. And cause everyone has a name, which is one of my favorite things about star Wars. Like when you flip through those um, Pablo Hidalgo's illustrated guides to whatever um, they all have names and I'm just like, I want to know everything about them. And sometimes they pay me to write it. Yeah. Let's see. Um, my favorite actually out of, out of everything that I had done on the series in 10 years was R2D2. It was always R2D2. Um, I don't know why. I think part of it is, um, I like robots a lot, um, but no, it's, it's, it, I think part of it is when, when you're working with R2-D2, that is R2-D2. You know, you don't, you very rarely see, um, you know, the actor inside for some scenes. So all the other characters really rely on seeing the actor. So you don't feel like you're with that character, but when you're with R2-D2, you're with R2-D2, especially the robotic ones, because he's, he's a robot. There's something really kind of fun about that. Even the people who build them and bring them to conventions, like there's always yeah. like a trailing line of kids behind them. Yeah. Like, oh my god, it's our <laughs> um, I agree. It's good to, to do both, uh, to kind of recreate old characters and reimagine them, and, and to do new ones. But from my personal perspective, what I had a lot of fun doing was um, I got to reimagine the look of the Time Lords for the 50th anniversary mm -hmm. Doctor Who, yeah. and I tried to do that in a way that honoured all the previous versions that have gone before um, and just put, put loads of little subtle details in there and use some of the shapes and silhouettes but just bring them up to date in a more HD TV friendly kind of way. But on a related note, uh, so when you're designing these movements for the characters, do you take Cosplay into consideration. So I know I've heard jokes about the Apollo going, let's do the cosplay, do this one. Um, <laughs> is that something you guys take into consideration? Is it, what is it like that you also see then those designs brought to life by someone who's not on the screen? Oh, um, I wouldn't say we, we, we think about cosplay uh, specifically, but we do think about practicality of someone wearing a costume. Uh, and, and, you know, being on a stage for 12 hours a day, that's, uh, I would say actually our considerations in a way though are much easier than cosplayers because they'll wear something around a crowd for uh, an entire weekend. We only have to last usually that 12 hour day and uh, then we can repair it. I don't know. It's, it's, it's different, but we do think about comfort. We do think about mobility um, for most things. Uh, there's that practical side to the designs. I'd say for the most part, we're not really thinking about what the cosplayers are going to do when we are creating a character or, or a costume. But I have to say, there was a little element of that in Dredge where I didn't want there to be um, the possibility that the fans could, could find um, a commercially available set of leather motorcycle trousers <laughs> or jacket, because I know how, how quickly they would all spot that. So. I made sure that everything was absolutely scratch-built on that. The irony then being I helped some of the cosplay guys with information. So before I ask the question, I do want to say thank you to the people um, for all you've done on Star Wars. Uh, I love Rex, I love Thrawn. Um, I am Extremely impressed with Padme's hairstyle. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the reason why I'm a drummer. <laughs> I love R2D2 and I love the scene of the fish tank. It's Thanks. so funny because I love like, Baby Leia and I love how Baby mm -hmm. Donna pretty much cursed out R2D2 for one droid. But anyway, so 
Um, if, I'm correct, Mr. Zahn, you were the one technically brought the file first into the Star Wars Uh Yes, in uh, um, Survivor's Quest. Okay, so my question is for both you and Mr. Gilroy. What did you guys go through to create a file first? Like, because I know Mr. Gilroy, you like created clone troopers in Italian, and Mr. Zahn, you were the one who actually created in Italian. So I just want to know, like, Actually, the 501st was created by, and I've lost his name, somebody, Alvin, Alden, Alvin Johnson, uh, what, 15 odd years ago or something like that? The 20th, okay. Now, it can't possibly have been 20 years. Um, you should be on the panel. Yeah. <laughs> as, as a Star Wars costuming group, we just kind of uh, picked that up and ran with it. At least I did. Um, you had to do Yeah, on Clone Wars, I think it really came out of necessity where the, the Senate had created this army of clones that were, for all intents and purposes, just cannon fodder. And the Jedi really came along and started giving them names, beyond just their numbers, and really making them feel like people. Um, because they're the Jedi are empathic and um, care about other living creatures, so that was I think the, the the beginning of the personality of like oh hey these guys should actually have color delineations that actually identifies who they are who they are and who they're with, um, and that's why later on once you know the the Order sixty six happens, you know the Emperor basically says yeah wipe all that individualism out we don't care just put them in white suits of armor so really I think the creation is 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 really about the clones taking on some of the personality of the Jedi that followed. And that's something that you see in the comics, and I think they developed in, in Clone Wars as well as other media. I think that's one of the things that I loved about that series is that you you see the way in which the Jedi can influence the universe for good, and they do by giving that army, which is made to be destroyed, uh, humanity. And uh, the... the in the pain again watching Order 66 when they turn on their masters because they have no choice. Um, and uh, then the, the beauty of seeing somebody like, um, you know, uh, some of those clones not do that. You know, I just, it, it's, it's such, there's such humanity in that. And I think that's something that's really cool about the clone wars. Uh, this is a question specifically for DK, but I guess probably for uh, Old Man. Um, as far as uh, setting, uh, that's the one thing that's a extreme setting in so good is almost its own character. It's very close, small screen, very intimate experience. Uh, I felt that like it actually so into a pressure cooker, and she may have been a different person. She might have been a like the Alice Black experience. And I was wondering if you might speak to that as far as like like how the setting. Uh, maybe is defined as a character or even uh, is influencing your character. That's a great question. Um, so with uh, Rada specifically, which is the farming planet, um, moon, something, I forget. Um, it's a moon. Um, it was very much um, the idea of going to ground. Like, literally, she goes to a farming planet. Um, and her isolation, she's trying to stay as alone as possible because she has this idea that everywhere she goes, she's going to attract attention. Um, which is, of course, what happens. And so I basically kept, she keeps trying to isolate herself, try, trying to find smaller and smaller, more out-of-the-way planets. And no matter what happens, um, she keeps sort of getting drawn into back into the events. And eventually she starts reaching out to more people and forming bonds with people like she used to do before all her friends were murdered by her other friends. And um, so it was that idea of sort of really, really isolating her and um, and sort of keeping her, she has she makes her own decisions in a way that she's never done before because she doesn't have any backup ever coming. Um, and originally they were uh, originally I was basically they said I could write Ahsoka and that was it. Um, she was the only character that I was able to write into the book. Now we know why. But um, I think that it really served the story really really well to have her not be able to call Rex if she needs him not be able to call Hondo, like she can call nobody. And um, putting her on a farm in the middle of nowhere was the sort of galactic equivalent of what was going on inside.
Um, so this is for uh, EK, and this goes on. Um, St. Lucasfilm called you one day and said, okay, we're going to give you free reign to do any story you like, like old public, any character, what would you choose? I have three proposals ready to pitch to them right now. I also have several. Yeah. Um, if they said no Thrawn, then I probably would pitch the idea. I've always assumed that when after Obi-Wan dropped Luke off uh, on Tatooine, that he went a good distance away and started making an absolutely loud, noisy nuisance of himself to draw attention that direction while the trail to Tatooine went cold. I would like to do a book of Obi-Wan making a nuisance of himself. That seems like a good idea for a movie as well. <laughs> do anybody, do we know anybody at Lucasfilm? I don't know. I mean, we might be able to come with someone. Um, I, I, I had like a standard answer for this. And then in the middle of New York Comic Con panel uh, last year, Pablo asked the same question, except it, it had to be a villain. And... I was, I can't remember what my original prepared answer was going to be, but halfway through the person's next to me answer, I was like, oh my God, I just had the greatest idea ever. Um, I don't know how it would work or what the practicalities of it would be, but I would love to write a YA Palpatine. Um, I just think it would be fun. It's like a lot of art appreciation and convincing your friends to murder their dogs and then feel bad about it. This one for Mr. Um, and Thorn Alliance, I was telling my friend about I love the dynamics of theater and Thorn Alliance. I like Thorn Alliance, theater is a place with this logic. And one of the things my friend was like, well, doesn't that kind of break theater's character? Like, it doesn't cut for anybody. But I was like, well, I mean, why can't we, like, theater constantly said, well, vampire trusts, vampire trusts Thorn. And to me, that was like his way of still letting Thorn kind of ask questions and give him the logic. There was some question from some people about uh, you know, certain scenes, you know, Vader would crush him like a bug at this point. And I had to point out, okay, first of all, the, the emperor still has use for Thrawn. Vader will hold off. I mean, pretty much nobody has use for Admiral Ozzel anymore, so we can, we can croak him. <laughs> but Thrawn is still useful, so that's going to help hold back uh, Vader. But to help with that all, I, I put in a couple of places of Thrawn. Uh, Vader is curious. Okay, what is Thrawn going to pull out of his hat this time? And having, because we've got the parallel stories and the Jedi had seen Thrawn do similar things, I think curiosity will be almost as strong as this is the emperor's servant. I can't just kill him. Just Vader is, I mean, he was Anakin. He was clever. He was smart. He was a good combat person. He knew tactics and strategy. Okay, this is a different guy. I don't necessarily like or trust him, but I want to see what, what he's coming up with this time. I think it is within character, and, and uh, I didn't get any complaints from Lucasfilm after that. Once I kind of, like, this is how I see it. What are the challenges with that situation like the Star Wars? We have so many characters that don't have a backstory, and then you guys are coming up with a backstory. And the other question I have is, Tim, I'm not going to be here for your signing. And my bartender, I promise my bartender. <laughs> is there an offering time I can do this with you? Yeah, I can, I can sign it. I, I did have one person comment, and I'd never even thought about this. They thank, thank you for setting up the Thrawn Invader walk into a bar. <laughs> I actually think that's the name of the review episode for the 602 Club. It's just a Jedi walking into a bar. Personalized.
I think that's one of my favorite like things about Star Wars is that there's always going to be someone around to tell that story. So um, a lot of us got to do it for the certain point of view anthology, um, which are characters that you know you see in the bar on Tatooine or um, people who are handing Tarkin stuff or like that that kind of thing or like people you hear on the radio. Um, that's I think that's Adam Christopher's the person who is on the other end of the radio when Han calls in, um, and it's like. They're like, we have a prison? Because <laughs> they, they, they don't know what's going on in the Death Star. So like, there's a princess? What is happening? Um, and so I just love that sort of um, the way of opening windows. And we get to do that so frequently. Um, and I think from a certain point of view, it's probably my favorite example of that. Just because it's things that like one person never could have thought of. But 40 people plus, I guess it's like 44 plus Elizabeth, um, our fantastic editor, did. Which was amazing. <laughs> Uh, there, there was an experience in there. Um, I think I was on, after I'd finished my work on Clone Wars uh, season one and two, um, one called me at, at like um, on a Saturday afternoon, two thousand nine, and said, "So, um, George wants to bring back Darth Maul, <laughs> and he needs to write a comic book story for how that happens, how he survives." And I'm like, "What do you mean, how he survives?" <laughs> George would put in the scene to so yeah. see both sides of him to make sure the fans knew he was dead. <laughs> well, he's not you dead. can't change your mind, George. <laughs> he was just kind of happy. He got the better. It's just a mere pleasure. So that was the that was probably one of those experiences where it's like, okay, this is awesome. On the other hand, it's like, what? Um, and and you have eight pages to do it, so because um, they don't want to give too much detail into you know what we actually are going to see in a year and a half when he appears on the screen. So um, I think it's I think it's awesome when you have an opportunity to um, bring a character like that back, or to uh, uh, like you was saying about expand on where they were and where they've gone, where they're going to. Did you suggest this was Maul's twin brother? <laughs> Had a brother. They were even writing something about his brother. <laughs> Speaking, I was thinking instead of like you can have a character named Zazan, Louis <laughs> Thrawn's twin brother. <laughs> That's one of your proposals. I'm not allowed to say. <laughs> I do have a quick question for you guys. Um, is there any iconic character that you, you just haven't gotten to work on? I mean. Henry, you've worked them all, but I mean, is there any kind of character you think, man, I would love the opportunity to do something with this character or design something for this character? Um, I would really like to work on My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. <laughs> Very iconic. That okay, thank you. I actually have a funny, uh, great story. Last convention, someone asked, is there a franchise that I, I never got to work on? And I always say the same, too. Uh, Tron, I would love to do anything in the world of Tron because uh, I think it's beautiful. And then Godzilla. And then I got to, like four days after that convention, I got a call from the producers of, of Godzilla and wow. I got to work on the last That's Godzilla. Awesome. Movie. That's so awesome. now it's just Tron. <laughs> <laughs> Clock starts I don't now. Um, yeah, I guess I'd probably like to have a go at reimagining some of the old classic Doctor Who monsters from the 70s or. Maybe even ones that have been done more recently, like have another redesign of the Cyberman or something like that. I would like to do something with Doctor Who, but I've, I've been told that they're keeping this for British authors. You know, uh, the way it was explained, you got to have a British passport in order to write Doctor Who. So it's kind <laughs> of, unless I emigrate, that's probably out of the question. However, I figure it's only a matter of time before Disney buys the BBC and then I'm in. <laughs> So he's been stalking me. Um, when Kane like, does the mind trick, um, they instantly get discovered. 
and Rex ends up getting into a fist fight with Rice. So it's like, that mean that Lon knew that like Kanan and Rex were going to be boarding this ship and that they would be using like, Rex's codes to board the ship and is also part to them. Rex who is it as Rex. So yeah, Rex Rex is in a stormtrooper outfit. He in disguise. So no, Thrawn doesn't know who's in the armor. Yeah. Does that answer your question? So Thrawn isn't aware of it. He he figures it out from the art clues later on. Thank you.